it's still remembered as one of the greatest TV moments of all time. It was 2004, and Oprah Winfrey had just pulled 11 audience members up on stage to announce that each of them was getting a new car. And the doors opened and out rolled a shiny new Pontiac G6. And Oprah said that there were 10 more waiting outside, one for each of these lucky few audience members. And then just to keep the suspense up, Oprah said, well, actually, I have one more car left. And someone in this room is going to be the lucky person. And out came staff members carrying little boxes and handed one to every single member of the audience. Which of them would get the key? There was a drum roll, a moment of anticipation. And then she told them all to open their box. And if you're more than about 25 years old, and maybe if you're younger, you probably remember what happened. Every single box had a key inside. And one by one, you see audience members' mouths drop open as they think for a moment that they are the only one and then look around and see other people having the exact same experience. And you see Oprah flitting around the stage in a moment that becomes iconic, pointing at people and yelling, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. They all got a car. Absolute unexpected abundance. A gift that none of them had been expecting. And a gift at first then that had seemed to be for someone else, for the lucky few. And then all of a sudden it was for them too, each of them, without distinction. It turned out that the show had pre-selected its audience members that day using a questionnaire that had questions on it like, how do you get to work? And how old is your car? Mixed in with other questions to try to make it so that everyone who happened to be there on that day would really benefit from a brand new car, which was lovely. Of course, there were also some wrinkles. Pontiac had donated each of those 276 cars, which was also lovely, but of course they didn't do it just out of the goodness of their hearts. It was a marketing plan aimed at raising their profile but in the end, it didn't really work. The G6 got mediocre reviews. There wasn't much of a boost in its sales. And six years later, the whole Pontiac brand got shut down. Even more of a wrinkle was that although the guests got their cars for free, it turned out later that they owed income tax on them to the tune of about a $6,000 tax bill each. Some of them couldn't afford the tax. After all, this was an audience that had been pre-screened to really be in need of a new car. And so some of them had to sell the car to pay the tax, which still left them coming out ahead cash-wise, but the optics weren't too good. 
which just goes to show you that TV magic is TV magic. But life is always a little bit complicated. And to me, that feels a little the way it feels to read this story of the abundant wine at a wedding feast at Cana, right in the middle of a pandemic. And not just a pandemic, but an Omicron surge. This is a story of incredible abundance. One of the iconic stories from John's gospel, right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. It's an acted out version of the visions of the prophets like Isaiah. Isaiah had foretold a kingdom of God with abundant food and free wine. And here it happens. Out of what seems like a situation of scarcity, Jesus creates something like 600 bottles worth of wine. And it's good wine. Something like Charles Krug at the stage in the evening where they might have expected Charles Shaw. And the maitre d' notices. And the disciples notice. And John calls this the first of Jesus's signs. There are seven of these signs in John's gospel total. And they're miraculous indications of who Jesus is and what God is doing through him. So it's just a fabulous story. And here we are reading it today in what seem like pretty un- abundant circumstances, where the idea of a big wedding feast sounds less like a great idea and more like a super spreader event, where big gatherings have even been curtailed once again by a county order, giving so many of us emotional flashbacks to spring and summer of 2020, at a time where more and more of us are worshiping online at a distance, together in the spirit, but not in the flesh. We're reading about Jesus making 600 bottles worth of wine at a time when we haven't shared in the wine of the Eucharist in 22 months and counting. And so our outward invisible signs of generosity feel a little restricted right now. At least we have plenty of masks to give out. You get a mask, and you get a mask. It's not quite the same. But even in the story of the wedding at Cana, there are hints that this story is about more than just TV magic. This isn't just a feel-good story where Jesus performs a nifty party trick to keep the party going. It's about a party, but it's about more. One of those hints comes in Jesus's words to his mother when he says, my hour has not yet come. This is the first time in John's gospel that we hear about Jesus's hour. And just like the seven times that John talks about signs, this is a refrain that keeps echoing through John's gospel. They did not arrest him yet, for his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come, keeps echoing through the gospel until finally Passover week in Jerusalem comes. And Jesus announced to his disciples, my hour has come. And this hour is the hour that he will be glorified on the cross. 
So this language of Jesus's hour is one hint. And then another hint is the wine itself. It's a symbol of joy and abundance, yes, but it's also a symbol of sorrow. Because for us as Christians, the wine with which we celebrate is also always the symbol of the blood of the one who suffered for us. So the shadow of the cross looms over this story, even here at the beginning. We're given a hint that the wedding feast of God is achieved at a cost, a cost that Jesus from the beginning is preparing himself to face. And I think that has a truth for us today. And the truth is that the abundance of God and the joy of God isn't about escaping from the suffering of the world. It's about moving deeper into it. It's about moving more deeply into the sorrow and the danger so that God can heal it in Jesus and in us. Tomorrow is a national holiday in our country, a holiday that celebrates the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's a worthy commemoration and it's a holiday that was fought for for a long time. But in our church's calendar, it's a little different. In the feast days of the church, Dr. King is commemorated not on his birthday, but according to the ancient tradition of saints and martyrs on the anniversary of his death, which is his birthday into eternity. And so our church calendar commemorates Dr. King on April 4th, which is the anniversary of that day in 1968, when an assassin's bullet struck him down on a hotel balcony in Memphis. What took him to Memphis was a garbage collector's strike. And it was part of the Poor People's Campaign, which was an initiative that Dr. King focused on after visiting a daycare in Quitman County, Mississippi poorest county in the country at that time. It was 1966 and he had visited this Head Start daycare in Quitman County. And he watched at lunchtime as each child was given a single slice of apple and a handful of crackers. And that was lunch. He could see the signs of malnutrition on their little bodies. And at that moment in 1966, Dr. King realized, he said, even more deeply than he had up to that point, that the victories that had already been won around ending legal segregation and enabling black people to vote still weren't enough. As long as children in the world's richest country lacked enough food to eat. So he launched a new initiative that in his words went beyond civil rights to human rights. He partnered with white leaders as well as Native American and Hispanic leaders 
to form a cross-racial coalition and to develop a nonviolent protest campaign aimed at getting housing and employment and a basic income for the poorest Americans. It was a controversial campaign and it was what animated the last year or two of his life. And four days before he was assassinated, he preached at the Episcopal Church's own National Cathedral in Washington, DC. It was his last Sunday sermon. And on that Sunday, Dr. King preached about the story of Lazarus the beggar and the rich man. A story where Lazarus the beggar lies at the rich man's gate day after day and the rich man ignores him and pays no attention and in the end dies and goes into torment and asks Abraham, why am I here? And Abraham said, because you ignored your brother in your lifetime. And now he enjoys these good things. Dr. King said, but there was nothing wrong with riches. There's nothing wrong with being a rich man, nothing wrong with being the richest nation in the world. The question is, what do we do with the riches? What do we do with God's abundance? And is the abundance that God gives us in creation something for the few or something for the many? Dr. King's vision for the beloved community was of a community where no child would have an apple and a handful of crackers for lunch. A simple vision, but a powerful one. And it's a vision that comes directly out of his faith in that same Jesus who changed water into a lavish overabundance of wine. The same Jesus who made a little bread and fish into a feast in the wilderness for thousands and thousands. Jesus loves to feed people. Jesus knows what to do with abundance. And he's also no stranger to sorrow and to what it means to go without. Out of his own suffering, he is there with all of us and with everyone who suffers. And out of his abundance, he is working to feed all God's children in belly and in spirit. 